Good evening, everyone. I'm Tanisha Taylor, and I am also the co-chair of the Affinity Bar section of the BBA's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Steering Committee. On behalf of the Planning Committee, I'd like to welcome you to the first program of the Amplified, Amplifying Unheard Voices series. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Boston Bar Foundation for its support of this panel. I'd also like to thank our co-sponsoring organizations, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, the Massachusetts Access to Justice Commission, and the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation. I'd also like to thank BBA's, the BBA's sponsoring section committees, South Asian Bar Association of Greater Boston, the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association, the Asian American Lawyers Assess Association of Mass, and the Delivery of Legal Services section, and of course, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Inclusion section. Tonight, our first dis discussion in the series will focus on amplifying the Black male perspective in a discussion moderated by Rasan Hall director of the Racial Justice Program of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. In addition to uplifting the voices of Black men within, legal within the legal profession, this panel will amplify the voices and experiences of non-attorney professionals. We hope that tonight you will learn, listen, engage, and return to your respective communities informed, empowered, and prepared to be an agent of change. With further, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our moderator, Rasan Hall. Rasan Hall, I do have to introduce you, Rasan. Rasan Hall is the director of the Racial Justice Program for the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, where he, among other things, engages in legislative advocacy, litigation, and community engagement geared toward deeply impacted communities of color and historically disenfranchised communities. Prior to his role at the ACLU, Rasan spent over seven years as the Deputy Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Economic Justice, at the Lawyers Committee, Rasan's work included policy and legislative advocacy, community outreach and litigating voting rights, police mis misconduct, and public accommodation cases. Rasan has also served as an assistant district attorney in Suffolk County. He, is serves, he serves on numerous boards and committees throughout the state and is an ordained reverend in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So please join me in welcoming him, him. and if since we are all on Zoom and we can't clap, we'll do a little snap. So please join me in welcoming Rasan. Rasan. Thank, thank you so much, Tanisha. I really appreciate that. And thank you to the uh, Boston Bar Association and the other sponsors of this event. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing at the Mass Legal Assistance Corporation, a very valuable uh, an important organization that provides funding for legal services of which I used to be a board member. So glad that this work uh, is continuing. And uh, thanks to the panelists who have uh, agreed to uh, join this conversation this evening for one that is very important. And again, I'm glad that the Boston Bar Association uh, is taking this conversation on because it's one that's not often heard. Uh, but it's also one that uh, is a conversation that does happen, but it happens uh, in uh, closed behind closed doors, and so we are 
putting ourselves out there a little bit. And, um, you know, sometimes we do this uh, at, at great risk to our uh, professional careers because the honesty of our experiences can be disconcerting to others. And it tends to pay, make people view us uh, through different lenses. But if we are ever to evolve and progress uh, as a society and particularly as a profession, these are the, uh, the real conversations that need to be had and that people uh, need to listen to. And so it is my hope this evening that this conversation uh, moves beyond white gaze, that people can do more than just sit and listen uh, and be uh, confounded by what's talked about, but think about and reflect on what it is that people can do in their own lives to address uh, some of the things that we are talking about here uh, this evening. So I am blessed to have a group of panelists with me here tonight uh, who bring a variety of experiences, both legal and non-legal, um, to this conversation. And um, I hope that you all leave this conversation uh, with greater insight uh, uh, to the experience that we have. I'll begin by uh, introducing our first panelist, uh, DeAndre Fernandez. Uh, he's currently an assistant attorney general for assistant attorney general for Massachusetts uh, Office of Attorney General Maura Healy. He's in the Criminal Bureau in the Enterprise Major and Cyber Crimes Division. He has also served in the Civil Rights Division. Uh, uh, he's also been in the Public Protection and Advocacy Bureau, where he enforced state and federal civil rights law in Superior Court, investigated and mediated complaints from the general public advocacy and advocacy groups. Before joining the Attorney General's office, Mr. Fernandez was a staff attorney in the Public Defenders Division of the Committee for Public Counsel Service in Norfolk County. Uh, he currently serves as one of the executive vice presidents and co-chairs uh, of the Student Support Committee for the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association. In addition, Mr. Fernandez is a co-chair of the Government Lawyers Forum for the BBA. And I guess most importantly, in light of uh, the DNC. He is an alum of Howard <laughs> University. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that is not the last we're going to see of that sweatshirt or others like it. <laughs> uh, our next panelist is Jonathan Allen. Uh, Jonathan is a first generation college graduate social engineer and advocate for racial justice and equity. Before taking on the role of development and partnership director for the Leadership Brainery, which he co-founded, Jonathan worked at Partners in Health as a supervisor on the Community Contact Tracing Collaborative, working to stop the spread of COVID-19 in Massachusetts. Fueled by his commitment to public service, he recently ran for Boston City Council in the fall, uh, uh, for the 2019 elections. Jonathan has previously served as legislative policy aide for Congressman Bobby L. Rush, a Democrat of Illinois, and is a past fellow at the Harvard Law School's Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice. He also was a research assistant to the Honorable Geraldine Hines of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Jonathan holds a Master's of Theological Studies from Southern Methodist University, uh, Perkins School of Theology, and a Juris Doctorate from uh, Boston University School of Law. Our next panelist is Stephen Hall. Uh, Stephen is a partner at Holland and Knight in their litigation practice. His experience includes engagements as counsel in high-value commercial disputes, class actions, complex fraud schemes, and false claims defense Prior to his legal career, Stephen was an accountant focusing on auditing and financial statement compliance. 
Stephen also devotes his time to community and pro bono endeavors, including serving and holding leadership roles on boards such as the Boston Bar Foundation, the Boston Bar Association, and the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association, and working with organizations such as Kids in Need of Defense, the Connecticut and New England Innocence Project, Lawyers for Civil Rights, and the American Civil Liberties Union. And finally, uh, Tony Clark, who is the principal of T. Clark Strategies Consulting Group. Over the course of his career, he has held posts at New York University, the City University of New York, Columbia University, and John Hopkins University. Tony has also worked for the U.S. Department of Education, taught in New York City public school system, and has served as an executive for several leading education reform agencies. He is a compassionate social critic who has written and published articles examining race, culture, and education. He currently serves as a tenured professor of English literature and learning communities at Bunker Hill Community College in Boston. He is the former liaison for equitable and inclusive communities for the office of Cambridge Mayor Mark C. McGovern, where he was charged with uncovering and creating systems to dismantle white supremacy and remains a faculty member for the English department at Bronx Community College, where he has taught for over 15 years. He is also a volunteer member of a state task force committed to designing and institute strategies and frameworks to raise the retention and graduation rates of males of color who attend community colleges in the state of Massachusetts and is a team member of the Cambridge My Brother's Keeper. So gentlemen, thank you all and welcome this evening. Uh, we'll begin our conversation uh, with uh, Tony. I'll ask you the first question because in order to have this conversation about uh, Black the black male experience and black male voices, I think it's important to talk about the experience of young black men in educational settings. And so if you could just talk about some of the needs that you have encountered and seen and have you've witnessed going unaddressed with young black men um, uh, based on the work that you do and why uh, representation is so important. I wanted to say thank you for having me here. It's just exciting to be here. And I just wanted, as a Morehouse graduate, I know it's uh, tough for us because, you know, Howard is feeling real, real good about themselves right now. So I'm going to defer a little bit to, to, to my Howard brethren here on the phone. Um, I thank you for the question. I think one of the things that I have found over the last couple of months, particularly I think COVID has exposed, it has exposed the inequities that have already been there, right, in our schools, in our communities, and most importantly, in our country. And so I think when I think about young men, particularly black men, we, we don't provide enough spaces for them to be vulnerable. We don't provide enough spaces for them to work through their grit. Uh, we don't provide enough spaces to empower them to understand in terms of that the schoolhouse expands to uh, after school, to the church, um, and, and working and looking at economic development. And when we look at Massachusetts, it's out of the top four in venture capital with you know, New York and Texas and California, and we're right there. And I know we talk about police cameras on, uh, on, on police officers to, to uh, undetect the uh, animus that's going on around policing with black bodies in this country. But we also need to look at the animus that's happening in the corporate rooms where have kind of placed us out of those spaces. And so when I think about your question, it's extremely important for me as an educator to help our young men, particularly our males, to say we need a plan for them. Right? We have a bunch of, uh, a bunch of plans. I'm looking at education right now how we can get folks to be back into school. But I think we need to be articulate enough and daring enough to say, how can we reimagine? How do we re-engage 
top population, which we're going to talk about on, on this call tonight. Thank you, Tony. And I like that notion of what is the plan. And so maybe at the end of this conversation, we can come back to that. And so in keeping with this theme of the HBCU battle, um, I think we've got another HBCU alum from uh, Grambling, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jonathan, um, which is a beautiful thing, right? Here we are having a conversation about black men, and y'all got me all up in my feelings because I didn't go to an HBCU, and I'm wishing that. Um, but that said, and I'm, I'll start with Jonathan, but this question is for, for all of you. Um, what... I want to ask about your exposure, since this is the Boston Bar Association and we're talking about the legal profession more generally, uh, what was your exposure to black men specifically in the legal profession, uh, but also feel free to talk about your exposure to black men in general uh, before deciding to go to law school and how did that shape or influence your perspective? Thank you, Rasan, and hello to everyone, and thank you to the BBA for inviting me to be a part of this dialogue this evening. And I'll say this, I'm, he mentioned I went to Grambling State University. I'm from the South, from Lufkin, Texas, a small town in East Texas. I relocated to another small town in New Iberia, Louisiana, when I got to high school. And so my experience um, has been one in which I've seen very little um, growing up black men in the legal profession. Um, that was not something that I was exposed to um, directly other than what I saw on TV, um, for sure. Um, I saw black men there at times um, and was inspired by leaders like President Obama, who was one of the few black men that I was aware of um, and was inspired by who had been in the legal profession. So beyond black attorneys, black male attorneys, my exposure to black men in the legal profession, I would say was really driven and connected to black men who were in public service, um, black men who were working to help reshape the law um, and reshape and engage how the community um, is involved in creating that kind of reform. And so for me, growing up in the church, um, that, that was definitely an avenue by which I approached civic engagement and the black men that I was exposed to in that space as well uh, within um, the public service space uh, was the exposure I had early on um, to the legal profession and actually was told by a black male attorney uh, when I was an undergrad that I should reconsider going to law school because um, it was hard. Um, and and, and it, I'll say early on, um, it was a deterrent. It was um, very disencouraging um, for me. And um, had I listened to um, that, that advice, I would not be where I am today. And so the point that we're raising about the lack of, of representation, the lack of positive representatives of black men in the legal profession is something that's a really serious issue and one that has been the case for a very long time. And personally, my commitment to helping to transform that trajectory um, is one that I think is very important. And I look forward to the rest of this conversation as we talk about how we move forward. What about you? What was your exposure uh, that influenced your decision to go to law school? I'm sorry, was it to me? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was fortunate to have some, some very positive influences in my life, like 
uh, growing up in, uh, uh, I'm from the inner city of St. Louis where um, there were a lot of black and brown people that looked like me, but they were not uh, achieving the, the goals of going to college or to, to grad school. So that was something you didn't really think about. But um, I had the, the fortune of having some powerful mentors in my life who were professionals and who had gone on to college and, and gone on to grad school to, to implant uh, different seeds in my brain. Uh, I would say that I wasn't one of those students who, who came out of high school knowing, knowing that I would go to law school. Uh, I just wanted to go to college. I had a, a track athletic, uh, athletic scholarship. My mind was on that. But it was just those exposures throughout my life that came back in the back of my mind. I remember uh, people that I had exposure to that, you know, that's, this is something I could do. Uh, after working as an accountant, um, it kept bubbling up that that was more for my for my career, more for my life, and that led me to to realize that I, I can I can strive for a, a higher goal, and and that's what led me to law school. Thank you. What about you, DeAndre? And good evening, everyone. Um, so, unfortunately, my exposure to black men in the legal realm, I won't say profession, because I didn't know any uh, black attorneys, women or men, until um, I went to uh, law school and some of my professors were uh, no longer practicing law, but were attorneys. Um, but my exposure and what led me to be want to become a lawyer, in particular a public defender, was the fact that like a lot of uh, older cousins who were like brothers to me, people I looked up to, uh, friends from the neighborhood, you know, they were... Uh, they ended up getting uh, entangled in the criminal justice system and uh, were often the criminal defendants. And um, of course, when a loved one is going through a, a situation like that, um, it, it's a, it's, I mean, it is a traumatizing situation and it's something that you pay attention to. So as, as a teenager, 15, 16 years old, you know, some of my cousins were tried for certain offenses and some of them had horrible attorneys. Uh, and oftentimes going to the courtroom to watch the proceedings, there was no one else in the courtroom that looked like us on this panel, except me, my family, and, and my cousin or friend who was a defendant. Jury, mostly white, if not all white. Judges white, court officers white. Attorneys on both sides white. And um, so, and through that, and growing up, my bus stop, I'm from the Dorchester neighborhood in uh, Boston, my bus stop growing up was right across the street from Dorchester District Courthouse. And oftentimes, just walking, I was in the MECO program, so I was fortunate enough to be bused out to the suburbs. That's a different issue, but I was fortunate enough to obtain a good education. Unfortunately, I had to be bused out to the suburbs, but fortunately, I was accepted into this program that's hard to get into, you know, to obtain that education that allows me to sit before you all tonight. But oftentimes the cops used to, I play sports. So I always had a big duffel bag with my sweaty jock strap, gym clothes. I had to wash every night. And uh, my friends went to Boston Public School. So they was out of school at like 1.32. I didn't get home until 6, 7, 8 o'clock. And they used to wait for me at the bus stop. It was five minutes from where we lived. And oftentimes, Cops used to run up on us, pat frisk us, demand that they search my book, my, my uh, duffel bag. 
I used to let him. I mean, I didn't know the law. I didn't know my rights back then, but I knew we weren't doing anything wrong. And that happened repeatedly, constantly throughout my duration in high school. Then once we uh, matured and started driving, we was always pulled over, driving while black. We didn't get tickets. No one in my core group of friends was smoking marijuana. So it was before the law changed and uh, we didn't. So uh, they could pull us over if they smelled burnt marijuana. So like none of those things we were doing, and it's clear that we were being profiled and harassed. So, you know, frustration mounted in me. And, um, and that's why I said I wanted to be a public defender to one, help provide zealous adv advocacy for people that look like me in the courtroom. And two, the 15 year old me, was saying, like, I need to have a job that empowers me or gives me some more power than the police. At least that was my line of thinking as a 15-year-old, which has led me on the trajectory I'm on now. Thank you. So all of you have talked about these experiences that you've had, the, the things that you've been exposed to, or the things that you weren't exposed to. And there's this consistent theme about uh, lack. Uh, that that exists, and and clearly all of you in your own right are um, are exceptional in some degree, but also like we're regular too, right? Because there's a bunch of brothers that are like us that just didn't have the same opportunities as we did, and so we we shouldn't lose that. Uh, but to the extent that it is these special opportunities that help. Uh, create pathways for more people, uh, specifically black men, to be in positions uh, to, to get a better education, uh, to have an opportunity to go into a profession. I'm curious about the work or the need to create pipelines. So Tony um, and Jonathan, I want to ask you all, Tony first, um, can you talk more about the need to create pipeline? What What is necessary uh, to build out pipelines uh, specifically for black men, but more generally for young people to uh, get out of the situations that don't provide as much hope or opportunity. I think that um, Mr. Hall and Mr. Fernandez uh, spelled it out and you just mentioned the word as well, exposure, right? Um, I think exposure is critically important uh, and also providing work, in some cases, depending on the age, work-based learning opportunities. I think a lot of times we have these really unique opportunities with our state. So for example, um, you know, there was a report that came out recently, uh, Mr. Fernandez had spoken and looked at African-American and other students of color who were in Mecco taking advantage of the, um, the credit, you know, when young people who are in high school could take credits at the college level, so dual enrollment. And they looked at some of the public districts, particularly Boston Public and, and Worcester Public Schools, and young people weren't necessarily, um, maybe they weren't taking advantage of them. I would argue that the engagement around those opportunities weren't presented to them in a real a succinct and clear way. And so when we think about the question which you've had, I think exposure is the start, but also providing, putting people in the position to see folks who are on this panel and, and to your point, folks who aren't, right? Um, and helping provide that trajectory as well and doing kind of being very intentional about essentially saying, Mr. Fernandez had talked about when he was 15, so he contextualize his reality um, based on his experiences. But why don't we put young people in rooms at 5, 10, 12 and have them write career descriptions? What do they want to be at in five years? What do they want to be at in 10 years? And then put folks who obviously look like them in those rooms, but provide them with a roadmap. Um, so those are some of the thoughts that I have, particularly uh, around some of the things that the other gentleman said. But I think it starts with that word exposure. That's great. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, I think it's 
Culture is key, um, and and certainly investment um, in our young people. Um, we, our young people need champions um, who are going to mobilize their networks and leverage resources to invest in them strategically to ensure that they get access um, to opportunities that can radically transform their trajectory in life. I um, mean, that's certainly the work that we're doing at the Leadership Brandery. I've co-founded a nonprofit organization alongside my partner Derek Young um, to help uplift lift um, our young leaders. Uh, we understand that when we educate, we liberate. Um, and to create racial equity, we need sustainable solutions um, that are going to really uplift marginalized communities. And so that requires that we foster equity by providing for us college enrolled young diverse leaders um, with opportunities um, to uh, radically expand their network opportunities, to work for the greater good, um, to advance their education. We're pipelining college enrolled student leaders into competitive graduate and professional schools because when I was at Boston University School of Law, I was one out of four black men in my incoming class of 250 students in 2016. And that trend has continued to be the case. My partner came to BU Law the year after me and was the only black man in that class. And in his cohort at Tufts um, University School of Med in his MPH program was the only black man in that particular program. And it was out of those experiences that we said, well, this is a problem. We need to figure out how do we pipeline more diverse um, students into competitive graduate professional schools. Um, and also with this, additional focus on ensuring that we're creating more opportunities for black and brown young men to gain access into these spaces as well. Because when we look around and we're reaching out for mentors and not just mentors, and I know we'll hit on it later, but sponsors as well, um, people who are going to literally go to bat for you, who are going to invest in you the long term, not just short term, um, that is scarce, very scarce. Um, for many of our young diverse leaders. Um, and so we have to create those pathways um, to opportunity, connecting people who've already traveled the road um, to them so that they can be able to learn about those pathways. Um, but again, this is also a charge um, to all of our leaders, a charge to all of us who have made it, um, that we have to come together in a way that we never have before to figure out how we mobilize resources to invest in our young people so that they can have high quality experiences uh, because many of these other organizations that um, have a lot of resources um, that cater to, um, or to communities that are not traditionally black and brown um, are able to do some really, really expansive things with, uh, with those young people. We need the, that kind of, those kind of platforms and those kind of resources as well. So, Jonathan, I want to challenge a, the a part of that notion, though, because I think there the, the the idea of like we need to give back, we need to create more opportunities for folks in our own communities. I think that puts a lot of the burden on us as Black people, which I don't necessarily think uh, is something that's not already happening. I think there are a lot of things that we're doing, whether formally or informally. Um, so, can. Yes. Do you feel like the greater responsibility is on us or do you feel like the greater responsibility is on the majority of folks who are in the legal profession to create these pipeline opportunities, recognizing the benefits and the privileges uh, that they have had? Let me be very clear. White people have a responsibility to dismantle racism and have a responsibility like never before to move in equity and be anti-racist and invest their resources in unprecedented ways to close the gaps on, on access to opportunity. 
black people, we must also be anti-racist and we must also be responsible and do everything that we can to ensure that with whatever privileges we do gain along the way, um, that we are accountable with those resources as well. I'm not saying that the black community is not um, working. What I am saying, though, um, is that there are aspects of the Black community. For example, as a Black gay man, um, we have a lot of work to do, even within the Black community, around ensuring that we are uplifting our LGBT Black folk um, in our communities as well. So there, we still have a lot of work to do, um, because even when we think about the experience of the Black gay man versus the Black straight man, um, there is a divide between us, um, and there is not a cohesive movement around unifying us that we that we must be on top of. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that and putting a, putting a fine point on it. Uh, yes. Um, you, you talked a little bit about your, your law school experience. And so, DeAndre and Stephen, I want to turn to you all to suss out a little more about um, that law school experience. What it, what it was like, you know, not the full three years, but, you know, what were some of the things that law school prepared you for and, and, and some of the things that it didn't prepare uh, you for? When you think about your, your legal profession, your legal career to this point, what were the things that were missing? first me yeah go ahead since you're talking all right um well luckily because i went to um predominantly white schools since first grade from first grade to 12th grade going to bc law was not a a a culture shock because in similar to the numbers stated by jonathan in my class my uh, incoming class in 2010 so I think time frame is relevant. 2010, there were eight black people out of a total of about 289. There's three sections and my section is myself and one African-American woman from Memphis out of a section of um, about uh, 80 to 90 students. So um, in terms of when you have those hard conversations especially in crim law and, 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 and what is actually being said isn't really what's being talked about. And then, you know, the anxiety, the natural anxiety of being the only one that looks like you in a group of a lot of individuals probably haven't had a lot of experience, you know, at least personal experience with African-Americans. Every time you talk, feeling the pressure of being a spokesperson for your race, even though I was speaking like tonight, speaking for myself, one black man from Boston, not for any organizations I'm affiliated with, not for, for any employers, my, my views and my views alone. And just having that added pressure. Um, and just when you're, you're, when you're trying to relate and looking for a comfortable face and just all those intangible things that like I, I believe our colleagues take advantage like being black person America one in general and being a black attorney in Massachusetts I mean all of us are comfortable with being uncomfortable but it's not comfortable <laughs> if that makes sense right so <clears throat> I mean law school personally I mean I, I'm sure it taught me how to think like a lawyer right that's what they say 
I think law school should be two years, not three. Um, the cost definitely should be uh, drastically decreased. But honestly, like being a public defender, there's nothing in law school that prepared me for that. Nothing in law school that prepared me to be a litigator. Like, so every job I've had, actually working on the job has taught me the skill, well, taught me the skill, yeah, the skills essentially of what I needed to know to succeed in that particular job. I mean, I don't, I know law schools and the formats have changed because when I graduated, the economy tanked in 07 to 08. So there weren't a lot of jobs being offered. When I went to BC Law, it was totally a corporate centered law school. So if you went to BC Law, you wanted a job at a law firm, you was basically guaranteed a job pre-08. But now they have the Rappaport Center and they're more focused on public interest in those types of areas because, I mean, those are the areas that are hiring and that have been hiring. And I, I think the, the new president, I mean, a new dean, well, he's not so new now, but he wasn't there when I was there. And the current faculty is doing a great job there in modifying the curriculum that uh, that represents, you know, what's actually happening in, in, in the legal community and is better preparing students and giving them the opportunities that they need to succeed. <clears throat> yeah, so for me, uh, law school was a, a culture shock. I mean, I, I went to predominantly black and brown um, schools through high school. I went to uh, a PWI for university, but um, it, was, it was so large that we had enough uh, black and brown people in the community that I didn't feel like I was uh, the only one. But then I got to, when I got to law school, I was the only one. I was the only black male in my uh, law school class. And I graduated with two black females out of a, a graduating class of about a thousand uh, lawyers. So um, that, that was culture shock to me. And when I got there was really uh, telling to me because uh, as DeAndre mentioned, you like you're in prep law, you're in constitutional law. And I'm thinking these are the, the highly educated individuals of our community. These are, the, these are the thinkers. These are the people that are fighting for justice, fighting for equality. And then I heard comments in class that like shook me to my core, like, wow, I can't believe that was said. And people still have these, these thoughts when we are supposed to be the individuals upholding the, the, the law and interpreting the law in the Constitution. Uh, that, that was a complete shock for me. I didn't expect it to be that way. Uh, but it taught me that, you know, just because uh, you provided a legal education, things are not just going to be rosy and handed to you, that you're still going to have to fight uh, for the things that you want and the things that uh, the, the equal rights for others, uh, that nobody's just going to hand that over to you, that nobody's just going to uh, just accept you as uh, a newly minted attorney, uh, they still see me as a black man. And so uh, that, that really taught me and opened my eyes that, you know, yeah, education is great. And, and I, I highly recommend that people get as, as educated as you can. But at the end of the day, you don't know what's, you don't see what's in my mind and the things that I have been through get what's in my mind. You just see what appears before you and you're going to judge me on that before you get to know me and understand your background. 
Thank you for that, um, Stephen and DeAndre. And so, Stephen, I want <clears throat> to tease that out a little bit more because there are a lot of folks, probably some folks who here are on here watching now, who say, but look at you. You're, you're a partner at a major law firm. So it, it can't be that hard as a black man out here. You know, look at you, DeAndre. You had the benefit of going to Metco and, and went to BC Law. That's a good law school. So it, it, it can't be that hard. Say, say something about why the experience is different, even though you've been able to succeed uh, and thrive. How is the experience different for you as a black man? Uh, who has made it to partner uh, than any of your other colleagues? Yeah, because uh, I mean, anybody will tell you in, in the legal professional profession that's uh, at a large law firm trying to make partner that it's, it's tough. It's not a it's not an easy role. So you just when you think about it as a black man trying to traverse those paths, you not only do you have the challenges that come with being an excellent attorney with, you know, networking and, and building a client base, you also have that sort of imposter syndrome that you got to deal with because you think, you see everybody looking at you as the only one and, and you, you're holding this torch of you have to shine because if you don't, then nobody else behind you will because if you fail, that means that the entire community couldn't couldn't succeed this so you're carrying a lot of weight on your shoulder a lot of stress on top of the the normal steps that you would have to take to to, to succeed in, in these environments and so when i mentioned the imposter syndrome is that you, you're looking at you know uh is everybody in the room thinking i'm i'm not i don't belong here is it because of the way i look is it the you know, it's 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 five or six uh, white males at this table, five or six white females at this table. But if you only see one black or brown male or female at the table, you're like, am I supposed to be here? And so you start questioning yourself and you put that, that, that pressure on yourself uh, that forces you to uh, go out beyond yourself and the pressures and, and intentions that your colleagues might not have to have to, have to deal with every day. And it's just it's, it's an, a, a, a tremendous amount of stress uh, that you have to deal with. And, uh, that, that's how I see it as being difficult and, and for a, a harder role than my white colleagues. Yeah. Uh, and DeAndre, I want to follow up with you and then, and then come back to Tony and Jonathan on another question. But DeAndre, as far as you know, your career and the, the, the additional burden uh, that you had. You started out doing the thing that you went to law school to do, is to become a public defender, um, but you're not still there. And I, you know, I, I, I can imagine that there are a number of things that led to you uh, not being at the public defender's office anymore. Probably part of that was salary, uh, which, which factors into race when we think about the, uh, the socioeconomic status of a, a majority of black people. Uh, but were there things early on in your career 
um, and this is kind of looking back retrospectively with an eye towards making suggestions for people who are watching now who might be supervisors, managers, hiring attorneys. Were there things that happened early on in your career that could have helped you, that could have propelled your, uh, your career as a, as a trial attorney uh, that, that didn't happen then, that now see, uh, several years into your career, you say, I wish somebody would have helped me along the way in this particular way. Yeah, absolutely. Like, for example, I mean, Jonathan mentioned it, having mentors and, and really having sponsors. Because I mentor a lot of individuals. I have a lot of mentors. But thinking about that, like, having a sponsor is, is, a, is a, that's that's on a higher level, right? And um, there's a lot of people that help you when, it, when it's convenient to them. You know, but how many people are really going to put their, their name, their personal equity on the line to really support you and, and push you up? Um, so having that in the beginning of my career would have been extremely helpful because, again, I mean, in law school, established some good relationships with some professors, and that was the first time I had real tangible relationships with legal minds. But... um. It's also different because people who don't look like us can only relate to us on a certain level. Um, and, and one major barrier, which is why I'm dressed the way I am, like people, my colleagues, they see me dressed like Steve, not, you know, <laughs> not with, the, with that beautiful knot Steve, Steve has, but dressed in a suit and a tie, you know, and I've had colleagues say, you know, especially when I was at the public defender's office, talk about, you know, when Dorchester Roxbury, Madison's on the news, it's always for negative stuff. There's a shooting, there's a stabbing, there's a robbery. And I had some colleagues who are actually public defenders say to me, you know, I'm scared to go there. Like, how do you live there? And I'm like, well, you, well one, this is where I'm from, but you know what? You could go walk through some of the projects and these people won't mess with you. I'm a lawyer trying to get back to my community and I'd be victimized way before you as a as a as a Caucasian woman walking through the hood, and I'm dressed like this to represent Kamala Harris's historical nomination, uh, and I'll speak on that later. And two, because when I'm not at work during the weekends, when I'm going grocery shopping with my family, nieces, nephews, moms, this is how I'm dressed, and people stereotype us based upon the color of our skin and, and how we dress. There's been so many times, personally and like in court, when I'm in court for a client dressed like Steve, where uh, um, I'm stereotyped to be a defendant, I'm stereotyped to be an interpreter, anyone but an attorney, even in some of my some of my jobs. And, you know, they go around introducing us to interns during the summer, even interns, and it's subconscious. And this is the problem. Like, people automatically and other attorneys who I haven't met at various jobs to automatically assume. So you're the intern? Like, where are you interning at? Like, actually, no, I'm a staff attorney here. I'm an AAG. Like, no, I'm an attorney. But people's minds, the first thing they assume is that you're, you're, you're less than what we are. And um, I think people in power, you know, and, and, you know, they, I mean, this is the golden rule, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. You never know who someone is, who they know, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, the biggest barrier is, is getting over those stereotypes to the point where I am actually being judged on my own merits. So, it's like that whole 
thick concrete wall that we have to get through in terms of, you know, even at the AG's office, have we need people like April who are there, you know, to open that door to help people of color get into, to, to get a foot into the door. You know, because I mean, there's all types of studies, you know, people are judged by their names. And I have a Hispanic sounding name and a lot of people assume I speak Spanish. <laughs> which is an issue within itself. But like, no, I'm black. You know, I'm Cape Verdean, most Cape Verdean descent, born in America, and I'm black. I don't, I'm not, I don't have any Hispanic in me. You know, but judging just based upon my name, people make all types of assumptions. So, I mean, I think that's an extra hurdle that black attorneys, you know, have to um, have to deal with before we even could get to the aspect of dealing with our daily tasks, you know, what our job requires. All right. Thank you. Uh, Tony, I want to come to you because a, a couple of times folks have mentioned uh, the role of, of mentorship. And I think we can look at it specifically within the legal context of what it means to, to mentor an attorney. But I think the principle of, of, of mentoring is something uh, that is kind of consistent across industries and across fields. So can you talk about the importance of mentorship and, and how it should be done? And to the extent that it may happen uh, 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 interracially, um, uh, or interracially, rather. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. I was actually, when I was listening to Mr. Fernandez, I, I had thought about an experience I had, so please, um, maybe helpful in terms of answering your question. While, um, so oftentimes I'm asked, how did I end up at Bunker Hill? Considering, you know, why did you leave Hopkins? Or why did you leave NYU? Or why did you leave Columbia? And it was a fascinating story. So, at the time that I was working at Columbia University, I was doing a lot of research, um, working on a book around hip hop. So I said, you know what, why not live in the South Bronx, right? And so I, so I had uh, found a beautiful uh, brownstone um, in, the, in the South Bronx and I started meeting people who essentially said things like, I work at Columbia um, and I, I work in uh, maintenance. And they didn't necessarily understand that if they work there, um, that their young person, their child could go to Columbia, right? And if they didn't go to Columbia, Columbia would pay 80%, you know, for them um, to go to another college, right? And so I started to kind of like spend a lot of time uh, with folks who were full-time, because that's a whole other conversation, who were in um, dining services and or custodial services. And I became kind of like this ad hoc uh, you know, information, kind of put information sessions together, like, these are the resources that you can have at the college. And I don't know if you remember, but around 2010, when I was there, Lee Bollinger was the president, there was a lot of issues going on around, you know, affirmative action. Uh, he had just left uh, University of Michigan. And so, like now, it was a prime time to have these conversations and to push on the college around its mission and, and, and mission and vision and to kind of call out its ethos, right? Where are you at? when you say in terms of you are going to engage community? Where are you at when you say you're in terms of you're going to be more inclusive of the population in which you serve and all of their children, not just the faculty, you know, faculty and other, the deans, you know, of children. And it was a fascinating experience to me. So I had this conversation, I, I will let that professor be nameless, but one, um, some folks, you know, find to be polarizing here at Harvard University. And he and I had a conversation and I said to him, you know, uh, in tongue in cheek, why, why haven't you taught in a, in a, at a historically black college? He said, you know, uh, brother, I don't want to do all that teaching, right? And he's like, I don't want to do all that teaching. 
and a lot of teaching. I teach five classes. And, you know, it was a longer conversation. And, and in this conversation, I had realized that, you know, while at 23 or in that, in that particular case, you know, I started at Columbia, then I went off to Hopkins, and I had a really interesting run. But I asked myself, was I really doing hard teaching? And I started to fall in love with the work that was happening at Bronx Community College. And I started to, you know, identify students who were really interested in if it was the law, the legal field, or if it was the med medical field, and providing them with um, gatekeepers, right, who have this particular uh, information and said, why don't you intern, you know, at that particular case, um, uh, uh, Mount Sinai, you know, or in some cases, why don't we, you know, I have a mentor in Charles Ogletree, who's been a mentor of mine for many years, and he was a lot more amenable than I possibly would have been. And he would like get on the phone with these young people who were at that time, first year students at Bronx Community College. And I felt that, you know what, I had to be at a place where I was helping on, you know, people see that this is a start, but we can go further versus being at a place where I could just have horror stories of being at like Columbia, which were great in some ways, but you had parents calling you, be calling a professor and saying, say, say my, you know, change my daughter's grade, um, you know, and I know I didn't do it to my white colleagues, right? You know what I mean? There were research opportunities at Hopkins that were some often just miraculously siphoned and given to white colleagues, right? And so these experience is that I needed to find a mentor who would provide me spaces to understand that I wasn't uh, going crazy. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't going off the ledge around in terms of ideas that I had, the research that I wanted to do, but it was helping position me to think bigger um, and also think about how I could reimagine community colleges and how they could work. So in my work, I try to be very intentional of finding young people. Uh, and I say young people, uh, you know, loosely, because some of my students that I've helped, you know, are older than me. Identify opportunities. And I think uh, one of your fellow um, panelists said pathways. And so providing them with pathways to prosperity, as was mentioned, um, providing them with champions, as was mentioned earlier. So I think it's very, you have to be very intentional and kind of do an audit of the place in which you're in. And is that place healthy for you? Because if it's not healthy for you, it's probably not healthy for 10 other people there. So how do you put a space for them and create a space for all of you guys to first be healthy, but also think about if you're in a place of influence, how can you bring folks up? So I'll end with this. One of the things in which, um, we used to have, uh, it's a funny story, but myself, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, Kevin Powell, and others had this uh, 20 pounds ago. We do this thing called, the, you know, uh, the academy. We play basketball. But we would also be very intentional every, every Monday evening, bring two or three young people from the community, not, not the colleges in which we work for, but from the community to play basketball with us. And I thought, you know, I look at some of those young people right now, Many of them are attorneys, so they're probably better suited on this call than myself right now. Um, but I think it was those experiences of exposing them um, to men, to men of color. That, that matters so much. And Jonathan, I see you had a co-sign uh, on there, so I want to turn to you. Uh, but I also want to incorporate some of the audit, uh, uh, participant or viewee uh, questions. And one of the questions, which I'll, I'll give to you, Jonathan, and you can say whatever else you want in addition to response, uh, to the question. Uh, and the question is, uh, one of the panelists spoke about the need to create more spaces for Black men to be vulnerable. Uh, what would this space be like? Should people who are not Black men create and hold space for them? 
That's a um, interesting question, um, and I, I believe I understand the heart from which it comes. And what I'll say is, you know, the spaces that we need um, are ones that are not controlled and dominated by white people, um, and particularly even white men. And I think that people who are not black men who want to contribute to the creation of those spaces, um, one must ask themselves, when is it my time to step back um, and move out the way? Um, when is it my time to provide um, resources and support in the capacities that I am asked to do so um, and being committed to doing that? Um, and I, I will also add that um, this is also a conversation, I think, about pipelining into leadership, um, providing opportunity um, for more Black men to be in leadership and help be at the decision-making table for creating the kind of spaces that are going to be necessary for fostering more communities of hope, belonging, and action. Um, and so, in short, that is my initial response, but it is a question that I would love to dialogue um, more about, and whoever that person is that asked that question, please, um, let's get in touch. I would love to talk more about that because I think it's very important. Um, particularly, I come from the South, and one of my entries um, to this space, the Massachusetts to Boston, um, and I know the question was raised earlier about our law school experience and what shock, if any, that we may have experienced, and for me, it was moving to Boston, um, which I've always heard of Massachusetts being one of the most liberal um, places, progressive places in the United States. And I brought my old Southern country stuff on up here to Massachusetts and learned that Boston is one of the most racist places I've actually been. Um, and not just because you all are in the streets being racist, but because the systems are set up in such a way. Um, the wealth is concentrated and is set, segregated in such a way um, that is profound when you know that the average white family in Boston has a net worth of over $200,000 compared to the average net worth of a black family being $8, that's a problem. And that's indicative and reflective of people not stepping out the way to create more opportunity um, for other people to gain access. And, and I think that's where it starts and that's where we have to continue to be intentional. So one thing that we have to ask ourselves, are we being intentional? Um, from what intentions are we actually acting? Are you wanting to support um, black people because you want to feel better? Or do you want to support black people because you believe black lives matter? And you believe that black communities for far too long have been living disadvantaged lives, not at the fault of their own, but, the fault, but at the fault of, 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 of white people who started America as it is and have perpetuated these systems and injustices and inequities for centuries, and that there is an obligation and responsibility by, by which you must step up to right that wrong and create and recreate new systems that are more equitable, inclusive, just, um, and intentional about bringing about harmony in our society. Um, Thank you. I want to keep with uh, some of the questions that have come in. And so one, and I'll 
uh, direct this one to you, Stephen. And I noticed where it's six twenty-five, so we're coming in on on time, uh, unless we can get a, a, a grant of mercy and go a little past that. But uh, this question is from Bill Gabovich that says, can any of the panelists share examples of specific actions of support that they have experienced from white attorneys that they wish more white lawyers did? Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and I actually, I think it will kind of supplement sort of what Jonathan was talking about, uh, whereas, um, what has been powerful in my in my career has been uh, white attorneys who look at me as uh, a potential successor. So, you know, I, I, I the legal profession is you, if you think about it um, is, is cyclical to a sense where you know you have a, a young attorney they work under in a, a mentorship or apprenticeship of an older attorney and they learn as much as they can and then eventually that older attorney retires and uh and show this young attorney all the ropes and then introduce that young attorney to all the people that they have known and then so that young attorney is now becoming this this person to 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 reckon with and they have a a, a large network of people and they have a large uh, uh swath of information that they have have gained and as that older attorney moves on they basically bless that young attorney to move into a position of leadership or a position of, 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 uh, of knowledge and wealth so that they can then continue that career. Um, and what has been good for me is that some, white, some of my white colleagues have taken that upon themselves to do that to me, where they don't look at me as, okay, that's just the black attorney or the black associate here. I don't, I, it's not my job to, uh, to mentor him or to, to open uh, uh, spaces for him. They have been intentional and said, you know what? I want you to work on this case. I want you to come along with me and this. And they have not only gave me a chance to be vulnerable, but they have been vulnerable because they have realized that, you know, by doing this, it's not the popular way to go. And by doing it, they also open themselves to uh, a new experience that they have not uh, necessarily been involved with. And so that's a place of vulnerability as well for them. So to wrap that up, I guess in the short term, not only have they given me the opportunity to be vulnerable, but they have been vulnerable themselves to allow me to grow and, and uh, rest my career. Wonderful, thank you. Um, the next question I want to direct to DeAndre, and it's how do we attract people of color uh, to the law, especially to work in criminal defense? That's a tough question. I mean, for the obvious reasons. Um, I'd still be probably doing public defender work, but for the lack of pay, right? So first to go to college, first to go to law school and um, get out of school. I mean, never had a lot of money. So when I started at CPCS, my salary is $40,000. <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's asinine. Like, I'm not saying janitors and court officers don't deserve the money they make, but I was the lowest person, lowest paid, public defense were the lowest paid entity inside the courthouses 
in the system at, at in, in 07. Um, so it's kind of hard when you're struggling. Like I'm still helping out family members. I have seven younger brothers and sisters. So like to them, to my family, to my friends, like I made it, right? But working in a profession, grinding every day, um, like I didn't make it. But to them, it's all about perspective, right? So I understand where they're coming from, but they don't understand, you know, what my bank account looks like, how much my student loans cost, how much it costs to pay rent and stuff. So, I mean, it's tough because people have to take care of themselves and everyone comes into this profession not, ex not expecting not to be able to pay their common bills, which what happened to me when I came out of law school, which started, you know, my me leaving public sector to go to a nonprofit now come to the AG's office. So, I mean, I mean, as a legal community, we need to do something to increase those salaries, one, to make them attractive to people who, who don't come from families or don't have spouses or siblings who have money that can supplement their income to allow them to take a job straight out of grad school making forty or $50,000. One, um, I think that's most important because I mean, I, I talked to countless law school students, high school students who want to go and be a trial attorney, either an ADA or a public defender, but they're like, listen, I have all these loans, I have a family, or I need a, I'm taking care of my parents and I can't afford to do it. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you get around that except to compensate these attorneys in these areas for the hard work that they do, protecting the constitution, uh, protecting people's freedoms and upholding the law. It's a tough sell. Yeah, it is. As a former assistant attorney, uh, assistant uh, district attorney, uh, you know, I know coming out making, you know, what I think the starting salary was twenty eight thousand. Then I'm not going to date myself, but you know, uh, with oh, people can't be calling me while I'm in the panel. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you know, with, you know, that type of salary with two kids, it was just, it was not the move, but I, I, I did it and it worked out, but maybe there are creative ways for, you know, for law firms or corporations to sponsor uh, fellowships that don't directly feed into their uh, firm or organization, but uh, maybe go into uh, the public sector. I know that legal services attorneys, uh, there, you know, you think there's a handful of black men in the legal profession to begin with. You look to legal services, and when you think about who is overwhelmingly served by legal service, it's predominantly women, but there are a lot of black men um, who uh, benefit from uh, legal services. So that is, it is a challenging question um, of our time. I have another uh, question, and we've been granted a uh, 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 a bit of more time, so we'll keep going with the, the questions from the, uh, the viewers. Uh, this one is from uh, Alan Loiza, if I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and I'll open this up to anyone who wants to, to answer. It says, when, we, when thinking about allyship, where do you draw the line between white allies stepping up without dominating and black men taking the initiative in creating opportunities? I think a, a first crack at that. Um, it, that's a that's a hard place to draw a line because uh, when you think about allyship, you're, you're thinking about someone um, going out of themselves to 
to support another person. So, and the, and then that question, if you have an, uh, a white attorney uh, being an ally to, to a black male attorney or, or a black female attorney, uh, it, it's hard to, to have that uh, black or brown individual to be the person reaching out when they don't know for sure that it's a safe space. So the, the line should almost be drawn in such a way that if you are a, a white individual who wants to be an ally, you need to step up and let that be known that you are willing to be an ally and, 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 and kind of put your actions where, where your mouth is. And uh, I think once you have that, um, I, I, I will believe the people who you're, you're, you're trying to reach out to uh, and undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly reach out, reach back to, in order to receive that help um, and then to form that bond. But I, I think it starts from the person in the, in the position of power to lend a hand to, to be that vocal point of, of reaching out and showing that it's a safe space for that allyship to, to occur. Thank you. Anybody else? And I'll say that in, in addition to that, one thing I've been encouraging people to do is um, to think about um, allyship versus being an accomplice um, versus being someone who is in it. Um, not just sitting and waiting and saying, hey, I support you. I'm not racist, uh, but someone who is literally stepping up, putting the voice, their own equity on the line and saying, I'm in this with you every step of the way. Let me know what it is I need to do. And I'm going to advocate and, and go forth as necessary. And I'm going to leverage my networks, my resources to help push this thing forward. Um, so I would encourage you to think very long and hard about being an anti-racist, um, being an accomplice and not just an ally. Go to the next level. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's very important. And I think, you know, there are tons of resources uh, available to people to, to figure this out. I've been in multiple conversations where white people ask me, like, what is it that we can do? And on one level, I feel an obligation to share some of the information that I know. There, there's books, right? You, you know, uh, Jonathan, you referenced the term ant being anti-racist, you know, a great book by uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I think that's a starting place. Um, there's also organizations like Surge uh, showing up for racial justice. Uh, but one thing that I caution folks against is burdening black people with the labor and responsibility of helping white folks figure it out. Like if, 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 if y'all are smart enough to be lawyers and smart enough to be partners and smart enough to be business owners and smart enough to be educators, you're smart enough to educate yourselves to find out how race functions, how racism functions, how the structure of white supremacy operates, particularly within the legal profession, take, take what black people have said, right? There are many, there are numerous op-eds, opinion pieces, think pieces, law review articles that discuss this. Um, there's TED Talks on it. Um, and and use the, the the breadth and depth of your intellectual and financial 
and social capital and power uh, to, to create space, to, to leverage power for other people, uh, and to be supportive uh, of other folks and the initiatives that they are engaged in. And to the extent that folks are in positions of power and influence and have seats at the table, use your own voice. And several folks have already said this, use your own voice to push the conversations and to change uh, the, the narrative, to subvert the dominant narratives um, that exist. So, and, and I think it's always important to get to get curious and not like, can I touch your hair, get curious, um, but um, curious around why the structures of inequities exist within the institutions that we participate in. So um, uh, we'll, we'll bl bring it to um, a, a close uh, shortly, but I just, I just want to say that there are a couple of comments that have just praised and affirmed uh, the panelists and thanked them for, thank you all for your comments. Someone uh, co-signed and says, I agree with Attorney Allen. This is the most progressive state with regard to our laws in comparison to the rest of the country. However, we are a very racist state. I appreciate him pointing this out. Uh, it reminds me of kind of one of my uh, things that I always like to say, that we here in Massachusetts suffer from liberal exceptionalism. Right. We think that because we were one of the first abolitionist states and one of the first states to have same-sex marriage and that one of the states that always uh, votes uh, for the Democratic nominee of the presidential race, that we don't have these issues uh, around race. But when you look at the racial disparities in incarceration or in the achievement gap, or what Jonathan pointed out about the, the wealth from that 2013 uh, report, the color of wealth uh, in the greater Boston area, uh, you, you cannot say that we do not have issues around race and racism. So it's important for us to continue to do this work. Uh, so gentlemen, I will close this out with a, a question for all of you. And, uh, and that question is, um, you know, what, what is it that you want uh, your, your white colleagues and or community partners uh, to understand about your experience and what do they need to do, uh, either start doing or start doing um, better? So I'll, I'll start with uh, DeAndre, then I'll go to Stephen, uh, then Tony, and then close it out with Jonathan. Well, there's not really enough time for me to adequately answer this question. But uh, Cliff Notes, I mean, give us the opportunities. I mean, for us to even be in the, in the applicant pool, it's a given that we work probably twice as hard as our counterparts. For all the reasons expressed um, tonight, due to all the disadvantages we have and all the obstacles, the lack of, um, the lack of resources, the communities we come from, the, the, the education, the, the school, the pipeline, I mean, the schools in the pipeline that, that oftentimes doesn't lead us to go to college, which then in turn will allow us to become law school students, right? It starts like in elementary school and goes all the way up. We can't talk about, you know, making diversifying legal profession if you don't start with the foundation of, of, of education. Um, and, and, and start being uncomfortable. Right, it's easy to, to to hire someone who went to your alma mater, Harvard, or whatever, or you you know you have relatives that go to the same country club or whatever. Like, step out of your comfort zone and look for things 
that 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 maybe you can't relate to. Things like HBCUs that people go to HBCUs knows what that means. So if you graduate with a 4.0 at a Howard University, <laughs> that is a 4.0. There's no grade inflation. You know, everyone's the same. There's a whole bunch of other distractions that come along with attending the HBCU. One of them, the main one is not, you know, obtaining financial aid, right? So you're already behind the eight ball when it comes to, to money, and that affects, like, what law schools you go to. I mean, I know I'm rambling a little, but that, that's a very complex and hard question. But give us the opportunities, um, take chances, and use your your privilege and, and give back. You know, everyone, I mean, and, and, and the issues going on in the world now, I mean, one, it starts with human de general decency, you know, and being nice to thy neighbor. You know, that's everything you don't have to be a lawyer to do. And just having general respect for your fellow humans and treating us as such, right? Thank you. I thought you were about to start preaching up in here, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> Steven. Yeah, and, and so I'll probably be brief. Um, what I would want them to understand about my experience is that uh, whatever I have accomplished, wherever I am right now in my life, I did that with at the same time as having someone or the majority of people I encounter believe that I could not do it. So starting from a position of, of that, no matter where I am, just know that the majority of people I encountered thought I could not get there. So that's one thing I have to carry around with me. So to understand that about my experience probably should uh, enlighten them into some of the struggles and the stress that I have to deal with. Um, what would I would want them to do or what they could do better about understanding that? And I, and I think DeAndre pointed that out. It's just, you know, provide opportunities, open up spaces, get to know me, get to know me for who I am, as opposed to just looking at me um, and second, and assuming I am a certain way because of the, the way I look and the color of my skin, but get to know me, understand who, where I'm coming from. And you may learn about those experiences and, and it might enlighten you in that way. So I think, I think that, that wraps it up for me. Thank you, Tony. I think both of the, the previous um, um, brothers had kind of summed up a lot of what I was going to say, but if there was something that uh, struck a chord with me that Mr. Fernandez had mentioned, particularly around the prison, um, school to prison pipeline. And I think it's critically important in our work or wherever we, we land. Um, I feel very protective with a bunch of lawyers on the call with me right now. I want to say that um, is that when we think about the systems in which we've been set up with, they're very intentional about not placing black, particularly black males at the center of the conversation, not letting them lead that. And so to the earlier question around um, what can corporations do, a lot of times I think it's very important to like move out the way and let the black folks lead versus allowing them to kind of be accessories in the conversation. And that happens in schools as well. And so we it's learned behavior. And so when a young boy is in third grade, we operate with that young person as a deficit, right? We don't, we don't, we talk about males, particularly black males as deficits, not assets, right? 
And so I think when that becomes subconscious, you go into these spaces where it's a burden in which you wear, you know, you wear on yourself so that when we sit on these calls, unfortunately in 2020, we're all outliers and anomalies in some cases, right? In a lot of cases. And I think we need to change that, that thinking. Um, and I think, but it, I think it starts with what Mr. Fernandez said in terms of how we operate in our, at the elementary level, right? And kind of shift that thinking so that our young people who are elementary right now don't see themselves as deficits, but see themselves as assets. And I think part of that is allowing our white colleagues who want to do good work, putting us at the center of the conversation and often leading it uh, versus, you know, being the cosmetic archetypes that often happen in these spaces. Wonderful. Thank you. Jonathan, bring us home. Yes, I want to say to all of you that if we do what we've always done, we will get what we've always got. And the reality is we are in a moment in which we can seize it to do something different. So I want to encourage you to do something different. Um, and in particular, as it relates to um, addressing systemic racism, um, I want white people to see it as their obligation to do so, their, their mandate to do so, which means you should wake up every single day trying to figure out what is it I can do to dismantle racism. How can I be more intentional than the day before about prioritizing black and brown folk? So that means you got to revert your bias um, and come up with a system that you follow intentionally to ensure that you're asking yourselves constant questions and checking your perspective and your judgment to ensure that when you're having a meeting, do I have enough diverse folk included in this conversation? If not, then you must understand that the consequence of not doing so is that more people are harmed. The consequence of not doing so is that we are continuing to perpetuate the systemic challenges and inequities and injustices that exist and have been existing for a very long time. I would say to you that you should prioritize investing also in our young leaders. Our young leaders are our future. That has always been the case. Our young leaders have, uh, were the ones that led the civil rights um, um, era back in the, the 1950s and, and forward. And in other spaces in history, we have seen it's been young people that have stood up, that have led the way. Even today, it's our young people that lead, that's leading the way on gun reform. It's our young people that's leading the way on LGBT um, equity issues. It's our young people that's leading the way on climate change. It's our young people that are stepping into the streets saying Black Lives Matter, and we won't allow another generation to come and live in a country that, that acts, breathes, and treats people as if we're not um, interconnected, interrelated, and interdependent. Um, that is what we must cease. Um, that power of our oneness and our ability um, to um, respect the inherent worth and dignity of all living things. And I want to take a moment to thank Black women um, um, for everything that Black women um, have done to uplift this country and this world, and particularly as a Black man to uplift Black men, and particularly as a Black gay man um, to uplift us, because we are some of the most marginalized, in addition to our Black trans folk, um, who are certainly with their backs up against the wall. We must be intentional 
about being intersectional and by, by uplifting those with their backs against the wall. So I want to take a moment to thank you all, but also to invite you, those who are concerned about social transformation, um, to um, continue in these dialogues. And as I mentioned, co-founder of the Leadership Brainery, we are an organization that is working to identify young, diverse college student leaders and pipeline them into competitive graduate professional schools. We need more black and brown lawyers, more black and brown doctors, more black and brown MBAs and tech leaders. Um, when we pipeline diverse talent into leadership is where we're going to begin to create the kind of generational change um, that's going to be necessary for really uplifting our communities as well. Um, so please go to leadershipbrainery.org. I'll put a message in the chat as well so that you can follow it there. Um, tonight has been incredible. Thank you to um, the rest of the panelists as well. Thank you so much for all the work that you all are doing. You are, you are inspiring and everything that you are doing is inspiring other people to come after you. So I just want to thank all of you um, for being vulnerable tonight in this way as well. Um, and certainly for everything that you do to push our communities forward. Um, so go forth, everybody. We're better together. Amen. <laughs> this is the benefit. Um, so thank you all. I appreciate uh, each of the panelists, DeAndre Fernandez, Stephen Hall, Tony Clark, Jonathan Allen, uh, for your vulnerability, uh, for your truth telling, uh, and for your vision casting. Uh, so to each of you all, Godspeed, continue to do the great work that you all are doing in the respective vineyards that you have been called to labor in. And to all who are attending this evening and watching, I pray that you take something from this conversation, from the seeds that have been planted. Uh, it is my prayer that they have landed on fertile soil, that they would take root and rise up uh, to change this generation for such a time as this. So thank you all. Uh, thank you to the Boston Bar Association. Um, and to uh, Tanisha Taylor for spearheading this effort and the others who have been, have been involved in this. So thank you all uh, and good night. Thank all right, you. Thank you. Thank you very much.